And so when you wake up at three in the morning and you run to the bathroom and flip on the light and there's somebody staring back at you from the mirror saying, what the heck are we doing? And how did you get us into this situation? You want to have a good answer for that person. Like, am I doing the right thing? Well, only if you know what the right thing looks like for you. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear, about the books you need to read. Over a 40-year span of working 40 hours a week, which most of us will do, we will spend 80,000 hours in what poll after poll shows that almost 70% of the employed are disengaged. And globally, almost 85% are unhappy. And unhappy with work likely means unhappy with life. Yikes. Is this the way it has to be? It is work. Well, the answer is delightfully an unequivocal no. Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, authors of the number one New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life, have done it again. Their new book, Designing Your Work Life, How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness at work is practical, smart, and motivating. Every time I thought, well, what about this? Or what they answered it. So with that, I'd like to welcome Bill Barnett and Dave Evans. Thank you. Happy to to be be here. here. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure. So your philosophy is we are each the designers of our life and our jobs. What does that mean? And what are the ingredients of doing design. You guys are engineers, but most of us are like regular humans. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been teaching design for a lot of years at Stanford and and this principle of human-centered design. How do you look at designing a new cup or a new bowl or a new something from a human point of view is what we teach our students. And then about 12 years ago when Dave and I got together, we started thinking about it as a, a, a way of thinking about life. The, the, the future is unknowable. We're going to design something new when we get there. Um, and then you use the principles of prototyping and, and all the mindsets of a designer, bias to action, reframing problems. And it applies to life and it applies to jobs. So it was a pretty simple, you know, kind of uh, transposition. You know, actually, you just mentioned you guys are engineers from Silicon Valley. How does this work? In fact, it's exactly not engineering. We talk about different ways to think, and design thinking is a way of thinking about a certain class of problems. It's quite different from engineering thinking. Between Bill and I, we have four engineering degrees. But what that means is engineers solve well-bounded problems with enough information that they know is going to work. The equations are well-established. They're called tame problems. Mm. But most of life's problems, the human problems, are what we call wicked problems, where you don't know what you're looking for until you find it, and you can't get any data because you're trying to find this thing that doesn't exist called your future. We don't have an analysis data available on the future. So designers are really good at making up new stuff into new space. And mm. since your life comes to you from this place we haven't been yet called the future, it's a long improv skit. And what we're really doing is giving people the improv tools necessary to play the game of life really well. Oh, that's a a small job. So what do you think the ingredients, you you talk about the ingredients, one of which is curiosity. So you have a number of ingredients. Share that with us. Well, curiosity is the number one mindset of a designer. You know, when I was at Apple for seven years, if you're thinking about designing a new iPhone it's never been done before you got to be really curious about users and how they how they think of you know what's a phone what are what's the internet all these things that you put together but I think curiosity from a life design point of view is to just be deeply curious about your future and the possibilities that it will it, it may emerge you know as something that that you can um, shape a little bit you can design a little bit um, so curiosity is a big one and then the other five, there are six in the book. We had five the first time. We added a new one. Um, and so it's curiosity, reframing, mindfulness of process, collaboration, and um, uh, storytelling. storytelling. And so um, if I go to reframing, we'll say, hey, you should – a lot of people can't get a solution to their problem because they're working on the wrong thing. Mm. We problem find before we problem solve. And that's what reframing is about. You go into a situation, deeply understand it, and then – 
how do I frame what question I'm asking? How do I frame what problem I'm working on? And so a lot of what we're doing in this book is reframing how you think about what work is and what it means for you to be the designer of your work experience, not your boss. So as you've done this work, I mean, this book is just publishing this week. We're in we're in New York. It's shipping today. It's February 25th, and right. it, it'll uh, air in a few weeks. But, but you did run a lot of workshops for designing your life and realized the degree to which work was making people um, unsatisfied, unhappy. So what is it that you think ends up being the biggest obstacle? Is it that they just get stuck and they feel helpless? Yeah, the, the issue is I'm stuck. I mean, this, the seven out of 10 American workers, nearly nine out of 10 global workers who are disengaged and frustrated are stuck on something. Yeah. And when we literally sat down to say, well, what's this book going to be? We said, well, between us, Bill, and I have you know, 80 years of business experience. And if you've been in technology, everybody uses that computing stuff at some point. So we've been behind the front door of everything from the Pentagon to a college to a small mom and pop store. So we've seen lots. We've run companies. We've started companies. We've hired people. We've fired people. We've been fired. So we've seen a lot of work. We asked ourselves the question, where are people getting stuck? And, yeah. that's, and that became the table. They get stuck on, I've got a lousy job. I get stuck on, it's not meaningful enough for me. I get stuck on, the politics are making me crazy. I get stuck on, holy cow, I just got outsourced. I'm getting a, a 1099 out of W-2 now. I guess I'm a gig worker. What's that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So people get stuck on a lot of things, but the biggest thing they get stuck on is I'm stuck, I want something I can't have, and I don't have enough power to get it, so I guess I just have to be unhappy or quit. That's the biggest stuck. So what's the first step for somebody to get unstuck in that? Well, if it's the one on, well, I guess I have to quit because I got the wrong job. So my two choices are quit and start over, which is really hard, or yeah. just suck it up and like what's unlikable. We're saying, how about door number three? Which is, Bill? Well, there's four ways, you know, don't resign because when you resign, you lose your whole social network and all the people that you worked with that you liked, not, you know, not just the people you didn't. So there's four ways to redesign, not resign, but redesign your job. And we give people, you know, a bunch of really, really simple ways that they can take small steps and realize that, um, you know, they have more power than they think. You, you really ha you, you have more control than you think at your job. You think it's all about, oh, my boss doesn't understand me or this culture isn't the right culture for me. And it's not really true. A classic so, example is a lot of people want to get promoted. And frankly, up is over. Mm -hmm. Companies are flat now. And you, 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 people still think to get ahead, I've got to get up. Well, there's not much up left. So what, so let's take, let's take two examples that you've got in the book because okay. – what I found interesting is you talk about reframing how you're thinking about it, but you also talk about two other things that people might feel doesn't feel right. Set a low bar mm -hmm. and get overthinking that it has to be perfect for forever. You right. use a term that it's good for now. Good yeah, enough good for now. now. Good yeah. enough for now, yeah. right? So you have two examples that I think are very practical that I'd love to to have you both talk about. Sure. One is two people that worked in accounting mm -hmm. and for some bizarre reason got interested in marketing. Right. Cassandra and Oliver. Right. right. So Cassandra and Oliver had one experience and I, I let's hear about that. And then the other was a guy who was quitting. I think his name was Brad because his boss was a jerk or maybe Brad that was the boss that was a jerk. <laughs> but he was working in a company and he said, I have to get out. My boss is a jerk. He gives me negative feedback oh, all the yeah, time, right. right? Which you hear from a lot of people. I'm not appreciated. Mm -hmm. So let's use these three examples for how to reframe, have it good enough for now and not setting an unrealistic bar. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'll do the Brad example because that was an example of, yeah, I've got a boss that seems to be always telling me I'm giving me bad feedback and he's angry at me all the time and I want to quit. And our counsel was, hey, why don't you, before you quit, and we have a whole thing on how to quit well, why don't you go ask your boss, what's up? Like, why am I getting this kind of feedback? 
Because it was unrelenting. Um, yeah, and, he's, and, 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 he, and he said, can I do that? I said, well, I don't, I mean, if you're going to quit anyway, I don't see why you couldn't have an honest conversation, you know, one honest conversation with your boss. He goes and he talks to his boss and he says, so what's up? Why am, why am I getting such, you know, bad feedback? And the boss finally, you know, kind of in a moment of silence says, listen, it's not you, it's me. I'm, I'm going through a nasty divorce. I'm, I'm losing custody of my kids. I'm not paying any attention to work. Frankly, you're, you're fine. I'm just, I don't really care about what's going on. Brad goes, well, you know that proposal I made about how we could change the way we test products or whatever it was, can I just go do that? He says, just go do whatever you want. I don't care. In that case, and then of course the boss eventually quits. In that case, it was just go find out what's really happening because you know the boss is just another person. He's got a boss that isn't paying attention to him and he's got a boss that isn't paying attention to him. And a lot of times we find, uh, particularly with uh, our younger uh, employees are the millennials that have been through Stanford just recently and now the Gen Z's, they just don't know how to have that honest conversation. So just go get the data and find out what's going on. Um, and in that case, he ended up doing his new project. It was very successful. When the boss left, he got promoted. He became the boss and he was able to reshape, you know, his work experience. That, the, you know, the the set the bar low comes from the psychology of behavior change. You know, we, we teach at Stanford. We don't just make stuff up. We don't just have ideas and put them in the book. They're based on research, and the research on behavior change says if you really want to make behavior change happen, you got to take it in very small, very measurable steps. And so, you know, setting the bar low in any of our techniques is really what's the first thing you can try? What's a bias to action you can have so that you go get some more data? Because you can't design the future without some data, so you got to try stuff. And the set the Barlow works in both cases. In both Oliver and Cassandra, they had a little bit of a different situation. I want to go back to uh, the jerky boss, yeah. who was really his life was unraveling. Because yeah. that's the example we actually use to help people understand how to actually do the reframing of your problem. Right. right. So I love that because I think people think of their supervisors right. as somehow not normal or, or not a human, so, not yeah. regular. Yeah, they're not living in the world. So here's how we do this. So in order to get Brad to the place where he can go in and calmly have an objective right. conversation with his boss, which may fail miserably. I mean, yeah, he, I want to come to that. Yeah. So he, and the way he put it was, you know, I'm never going to get any feedback around here. My boss is just a jerk. Right. My problem is I'm never going to get any feedback around here, never get any appreciation um, because my boss is just a jerk. We say, okay, now that's your framing. And that framing, how could you, is that a generative framing? Does that way of thinking about your situation tee you up well to make progress, to understand your situation well and objectively make progress forward? And it doesn't. And the first thing we suggest you look at is, is there any drama hiding in your description that's not doing you any good? <laughs> and the power words in that, I'm never going to get any feedback. My boss is just a jerk. So the power words are never and just a jerk. Mm. So, hey, can we just take what you said and just take the drama out? You know, to date, I've not been able to obtain any feedback. That's the objective truth. Right. And as your as your boss, your boss is a jerk. In fact, he's just a jerk. He's a full time twenty four by seven. Right. All he does is walk around being a jerk. Right. Is that really true? Well, he's not kind no. Of cats. He's not kind does of he dogs. do nothing? And right. he's actually really good at the numbers. He's good at a whole bunch of stuff, but he's terrible at this feedback thing. I mean, is he really like? Is he mean? Is he nasty? Does he kick the dog? Or is he just there's this one thing you can't get out of him, and you're so unforgiving of that one failure of his, you've decided he's a full time jerk. So what's really going on there, Brett? Well, actually, he's good at a whole lot of stuff, but he's terrible at feedback. Mm. He's terrible at feedback. So and so, I today have been unable to obtain feedback, and there are no indications that my boss will be a provider of it. That's an objective description. And now you say, and what does that invite you to decide about what you could do? Right. Well, why do I want feedback? What kind of feedback do I want? What are the sources of feedback? Are there available in the company or outside the company? And am I or am I not willing to take the personal risk of now not confronting or criticizing, yeah. but dialoguing with my boss? Hey, John. And those are important words, those right? Very because important you words. can't go in and say, you know, I'm sick and tired right. of you no. attacking right. me. Yeah. No. Because you're the victim of your own your, – your emotions, which are frustrated. You have to own that. Right. Are now giving you the, a melodramatic description of something because right. you're, you're not getting what you want. You want some feedback. Why do I want feedback? So I can do good work. Okay. I mean, so this worked out right. And, and your examples in the book are real. You don't make them yeah, up, right? right. Sometimes okay. they're amalgamations and they're all anonymized. But no, this is all based on 3D But now people. I go in and talk to my boss who's a jerk. I've taken the emotion out of right. it. I've gotten all the right dialogue. Right. And I go in there and he is a jerk. 
Right. And he says, no, I'm not doing that. And he said, you know what? I don't even know what you're talking about. You're You're too needy. I'm sick of all you people wanting feedback all the time. I got a goddamn job to do. Right. Then what do you do? You you go, thanks. (laughs) I'm so glad to know that. I am now free. So we do acceptance. We are big on acceptance. Yeah. Oh, I now... Now, by the way, acceptance... I have some real data now. Acceptance is not the same thing as endorsement. Mm-hmm. If I accept, let's call him John. If I accept that John has now announced to me, no, I'm not going to give you any feedback. You have perceived that correctly. Great. I don't have to waste one more ounce of emotional energy waiting yeah. for something that's never going to come. And either I've got to get it elsewhere, I've got to learn to live without, or if I can't learn to live without and I can't get enough elsewhere, I might, might start thinking about moving on. And the the other piece before we get to Cassandra and Oliver, so you have people start with um, a work view and a life view. Yes. And so those questions are questions like um, uh, why work, what's work for, what does work mean, how does it relate to the individual, what defines good and worthwhile work, what does money have to do with it. Right. Uh, or the life view has, why are we here? What's the meaning, purpose of life? What's the relationship? Yep, the big questions. The big questions. Mm-hmm. How th- These feel like hard questions to answer. Mm-hmm. What do you find when you ask people to start yeah. working on this? Well, we asked them, first of all, we asked them for about you know 150 to 250 words, like a, a, a paragraph, not a not an essay. Not a treatise. Yeah, not a treatise. Don't turn the page over. And, mm-hmm. and, oh, um, and, and it's interesting because half the people say, you know, work for you is easy, but coming up with my life view, I really had to think hard at that. And half the people are the opposite. I've got a life view. I really know what, you know, I think I know what the meaning of life is, but I've never really thought about how work relates. And the point of doing the two of them is this idea of coherence. If uh, there's a lot of evidence in psychology, Mm -hmm. if, you know, if you kind of know why you're here and know how work fits into the big question, you will experience your life as meaningful. And the big, big, the big, big ask from everybody we interviewed was, will life be more meaningful? Will the job fit? Will I, will I have impact? Will I feel like it's worth it? So just writing, you know, two paragraphs and then looking at the coherence between the two gives us what we call your compass. So now you've got something to say, all right, I may rewrite this. And people do. They rewrite it, you know, every six months as they kind of learn this methodology. But I've got to know what my design criteria are. i got to know where I'm starting. And so having a pretty good idea of, you know, what's the meaning of life, whatever that is, you can have, you know, spiritual, non-spiritual Whatever, uh, just you know, humanistic meaning of life, and then how does work fit in it? Uh, and then you've got a compass, and now when when a new opportunity comes up, you can say, "Hey, is that really coherent for me? Is that, or is that just what my mom wants me to do?" Mm-hmm. You know, we still we run into lots of people in their forties and fifties who are still working on somebody else's oh, version I, of no. their life. I see it a lot with yeah. doctors and lawyers. Well, lawyers are the number one people who raise their hand. Daddy when we say, doctor. We spend a lot of time lawyer. talking to lawyers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so so checking in with yourself. So the design, design thinking starts with empathy. Empathy for myself. What, what do I really want? And then empathy for the world. Well, what does the world need that I could, you know, I could work into? It, that's that's the whole pur- purpose of that that part of the assignment. And it's pretty it's pretty revealing. You know, it's just a moment to reflect. Uh, what's the bigger picture that I'm trying to design into? Okay, so this is different then, and I thought this was a very interesting di- distinction in the book because you have these questions and you're talking about really plugging into the outcomes and the conditions that appeal to you, Mm -hmm. which is different than the other thing that we hear a lot about, which is, well, sweetheart, what's your passion? Right. Oh, yeah. And you talk about in the book, well, in reality... 20 per, only 20 based on data yeah. at Stanford yeah. only 20 percent of people are like defined by a passion they right. wanted to be the dancer the doctor the right. Indian chief right. and they were four they wanted to be the firefighter yeah. right. and the other is you need to be your best self you need right. to know who you need to be so how are those different from the questions well, you're talking you, about you take best self I'll yeah, take okay. passion the um <laughs> The point is, um, 
again, writing the life view and the work view, what, what, is it, what, what is your belief system about what you think the good life is? I mean, so when you wake up at three in the morning and you run to the bathroom and flip on the light and there's somebody staring back at you from the mirror saying, what the heck are we doing? And how did you get us into this situation? You want to have a good answer for that person. Like, am I doing the right thing? Well, only if you know what the right thing looks like for you. Now then, and is this working well enough? Is my life okay? Well, have I found my passion? Is this really my best self? And we say, look, we're human-centered designers, and our, our anthropology is a little different than those questions. Our observation, and frankly, a lot of science would say, the way we put it is every one of us contains more aliveness than one lifetime will permit you to live. Mm. You oh, Just before we went, you know, and hit the recording button, you were talking about, you know, you went from finance into book selling. What the heck, you know? I mean, who? I mean, the finance people are like, she's a bookseller. The book people are like, she's a finance person. I mean, it's not possible. You had a personality exchange when we weren't looking. Except, and that's only two of the seven of you. Mm-hmm. So since well, I'm only seventy. I have time. Well, yeah, since yeah. there's you know there's there, there there's lots of lives in each of us. There's more than one of you in there. So there is no one best you. There are mm. many good yous. But don't you find? I mean, I hear because we're of an age where there are children of friends and grandchildren sure. of friends right. coming to see us all. Well, I don't know what I want to do. I don't. So, to my view. Filling out that work view, mm-hmm. life view, sort of sidetracks that question. Right. I mean, I don't know if sidetracks mm-hmm. the right word, but it feels like it, it becomes a workaround for people who say, I'm a mess because I don't even know what I want to be. I don't even have, I don't even know. And do you find that that actually happens, that the, that the worksheet process helps them overcome that? Sure. I think what, what a lot of our tools do is first assess where you're at. Like what, what, what do you know and what don't you know about yourself? And then, and then reflect on that. What is that? How do, you, how do you feel about that? And then we give you one small step to take it forward. So, you know, the, uh, do you have a best life? You know, we, you know, there's a good is the enemy of best, better and better is the enemy of best. You've got to always be your best. Uh, what do you say? You say. So it says, look, if, you know, you know, if good is the enemy of better and better is the enemy of best, be your best self. And if there is no best self, mm. one of the reasons people go, I'm not sure this is really it. Am I really being my best self? And that little voice goes, ah, you hear this kind of squeaky noise. And the reason your soul suspects that it's not being your best self is because there isn't one. Yeah. There's no, I mean, there are a small number there of people. There's answer. not one exact perfect you that's the apex of the human experience. There's not one better version of Roxanne than any other. And let's say there's multiple versions of a real Roxanne's. And they're so different, it's not better or worse, mm. right? I mean, so right now, what's, I, you know, I, what's better? I have eight grandchildren, um, my grandfather self, my educational reformer self, or my, you know, I have another part-time job here in New York in a social impact incubator, my startup CEO coach self. What's mm. better? I mean, it's like apples, but frogs, da- but Dave, and steel. They're so different, it's not about better. So, Dave, you have found this, but you didn't just leapfrog to this kind of a discovery. I mean, if uh, in the book you mm-hmm. talk about that, your goal was to be a great dad. Right. Right? Your dad died when you were nine, yep. and your job was going to be, be a great I'm going to be a great dad. How'd you do starting out being a terrible. great dad? Terrible. <laughs> terrible. I mean, now, I care, I, I'm I, saying that not because I know no, no, yeah, no, kids I cared, cared very deeply about it, you know, and, and, when, uh, and it was much more important to me to be a good dad than to be a good professional. I'm going to care about my work and what have you. And what I did not know about myself at all. Um, is that I'm a closet workaholic. Mm. And I'm a closet workaholic accidentally. I have ADD really bad, Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out, which means I get distracted easily. But that means really I get interested easily. And at particularly in startup companies and Silicon Valley and what have you, there's a lot of interesting, bright, shiny objects. And, you know, I would look up and it'd be 9 o'clock at night again. You know, so I was distracted by bright, shiny objects for which I was being well paid. And the VC investors are perfectly happy for you to work 80 hours a week. Oh, yeah, they're good. They, they, everybody's happy, except I noticed I was never home. Mm. 
Um, and so I awakened to this late in life, you know. And, and a lot of the stuff in, in both her books comes out of, you know, we're all walking our wounds out. I mean, I had a horrible time. <laughs> I like that out. term, walking our wounds out. I mean, I had a horrible time figuring out what to do with my life between 19 and 25. And then I had a heck of a hard time maturing into carrying the responsibilities of full adult life when I was married and had kids and was running companies and all at the same time. I, did, I, I grew up really slow. And I was frankly ticked off that people gave me pretty poor tools. I thought the mentoring I got was criminally negligent. Mm -hmm. And largely, we're writing books and giving people tools we wish we had when we were growing up. So one of the other tools that I thought was so um, – it was it was like a little bit of an epiphany mm -hmm. uh, for me. And um, I think I said uh, to both of you before I um, started the interview, I've always loved all the, any mm -hmm. work I did. Yeah. Um, yet, so you have this – um, it's called the maker mix. Right. And I love that because I think it's a great way for us to contextualize what matters to us, at least at this, at a point in time. Right. So explain what the maker mix is and how our listeners could use this. Yeah. What do you make? People keep saying, what do you make? <laughs> hey, Bill, what do you make? Well, and, and mostly they're thinking about what do you make in terms of money. But um, we we get this all the time when we were talking to people in workshops. They're like, yeah, well, you know, I'd really like to do something meaningful, but I need to make some money. And so there's this dichotomy, money versus meaning, money versus yeah. meaning. Whenever you make something a zero-sum game like that, you have only two choices and you can only have a little bit more of this if you have less than that, your brain automatically, you know, can't win, right? You just can't win it neurologically. And so one of the things we do is we break up these dysfunctional beliefs. It's not three. It's not two things. It's really three. In the, in the market economy, in the world where we go to work, we mostly get paid in money. We'd also, most people, when we talk to them, would like to have some impact. They want to know that the job they're doing has is, is got some impact. So, you know, I want to get paid in impact as well, impact dollars, if you will. And then when we have people do, in the first book, we have a thing where they do three plans for their lives 100% of the time and thousands of these plans. People want to be a little more creative, a little more expressive. There's something in them that is a little of the inner artist that's not being heard. And when we talk to artists, we say, hey, I, I, I get paid in expression. If I get to do my, my poetry at the open you know, poetry slam night or I get to perform my play or get to, people get to see my painting, I'm, I feel great. So you get actually get Our paid. Our staff writer wasn't available Sunday because she was out doing stand-up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you get paid at, in money impact and expression. And once you once you look at it that way, you go, oh, well, wait a minute. There's lots of places where I'm having impact. Maybe it's not the job, but maybe I'm coaching that AYSO team and I'm teaching those young girls about teamwork and, and how to you know set a goal and achieve it. And maybe I am having expression somewhere in my life. You know, for me, when I was, uh, I was working at Apple and then I had my own consulting firm for a bunch of years, and when David Kelly called me up in 2006 and said, hey, would you— Were you there when Steve Jobs was there? I just left just before he came back. Um, it was kind of a little bit so chaotic. So that was a chaotic time. It was a pretty chaotic Whoa. time, yeah. But when David called me, David Kelly called me up, who's our senior academic, the guy who started IDEO and the D-School, he said, listen, I'm starting this new thing, the D-School, and I need someone to come in and run the program. Would you consider taking the full-time job at Stanford because you've been teaching here part-time for a long time? And I said, great. Um, sounds like fun. What does it pay? He said, well, it's about half of what you're making. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And then knock, knock, knock. Yeah, and then knock, <laughs> knock, knock. About, about a week later, Microsoft called and said, hey, we'd like to pay you twice what you're making to come run the TV business for us. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and had a long conversation with my wife. And, you, you know, because you're not designing your life alone. You, you know, yeah, got, there are people. There's three, there are three kids and, uh, and a wife and everybody's in the boat. Um, but I made the decision to, to, that I wanted to put a thousand smart designers in the world. And I was mm -hmm. going to work for 10 years to put a thousand kids in the world who wanted to work on the big problems, climate change, global warming, uh, you know, energy. The little stuff. Healthcare, yeah. And I thought that I'd have a way bigger impact doing that. And so taking a 50% pay cut, no problem. Yeah. Because my, I dialed up my impact. I dialed up my expression. I get to design classes. I get to design the experience these students are having to learn. And that more than paid off the, mm. the, the decrease in money. So. You know, my experience and other people we talk to, if you think about your life as this as th three sliders on a mixer board, you have like if you're mixing a song, you can have more bass, more, more, more of the vocal, more, you know, more of the rhythm. And, and you don't want them all at the top because then it, it just sounds like mush. But there's a balance in any place in your life. It was a good balance when I was running my consulting company. You make a lot of money. Yep. You help people with their products. That's great. But they're not your ideas. They're somebody else's. So you don't have any expression. 
now as a as a as an educator, I'm having this fantastic impact on lots and lots of students. And now with the Designing Your Life class, even more. And the class is now being taught at 120 other universities, so we're having an impact there. Um, you know, then you just say that's that's the right mix for now. And Bill, one of the things I found in the book is it's eminently practical, so that it isn't logical to put every one of those in the book. Uh, for our listeners, it shows up as bar graphs. Right, right. It's not logical to say, I want to have maximum impact and I want maximum money. And basically in the book, you say, get real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. pick what right now matters more. And the other interesting thing that you did, which I thought would be a great exercise for anybody to take either now or in a good job or a bad job is to take those three pockets Mm -hmm. and lay out your day. Right. Like you have the bars across the top and the days down the bottom with little boxes. I'm sure Mm -hmm. listeners are not picturing what I'm saying. But basically you would say it's Monday. How much what happened? Did I have any impact? Did I end up making a lot of money or making money uh, for my company? Or did I get a chance to be creative? And I so that to me was like, wow, that's an interesting way to think about your day. It well, this is. is this is the whole point about having agency. The thing is really about empowerment, right? I mean, organizations are moving from talent management to talent empowerment. And what we're trying to do is say, look, you already are the designer of your life and career. Yeah. So now just take on the mantle, you know, and here are the tools. Enjoy the ride. So literally one of the things you can simply do is notice what you're doing, right. take responsibility for it, and then get the benefit. People are leaving assets rotting on the counter <laughs> yeah. every single day. So the metaphor we use is, is a mix board. The sliders, so I have, you know, capacity for the bass tone, capacity for the drum sound, capacity for the voice track. So I have capacity in money-making, capacity in impact creation, capacity in expression. And I move my output slider. I turn them up and down. So I'm aware of what my mix is at a particular season of life. But on a given day, am I just paying attention to, hey, what was my output today? Oh, that was a creative output. Did you notice that? So taking credit for by having agency in noticing what you're actually doing. Part of this is installing language as an infrastructure to catch yourself in the act of actually enjoying your life. And And it's another way of being present, you know, which is like an overused cliche. But if at the end... um, if at the end of the day, you're making note of it, you know, Matthew Dix has a book on storytelling, right. and which I love, and he has an exercise called Homework for Life. And he did it as a way of starting to accumulate stories that he would want to tell. But the exercise is similar to what you're talking about, because he says at the end of the day, write down what mattered in the day. Not a gratitude journal. Right. right. Different, right. yeah. Which is different. But what mattered? Because it might be something that makes you sad. It might be something that makes you proud. But it's a way of saying, yep, there's something in every day that mattered. Yeah. And you're taking it into the work matrix to say, okay, is it impactful? Is it financially beneficial? Right. Is it creative? And, and the good and the really good news is you don't need your boss's permission for almost anything in the book. You are the yeah. designer of right. your life. You can decide to have more expression. You can decide to pick up a little side project. You can understand what the company values, and then you can just start doing things that are more valuable. And nine out of ten times, companies love it when em- employees are en- engaged and doing things that are of value to the company. So. A lot of what we find is that when people go through these exercises, they realize, oh, I was waiting for someone else to fix this problem, but actually a lot of it is fixable myself. Now, we have a big warning, toxic workplaces, bad places, you know, horrible people, you know, sexism, racism, whatever isms that are activated. There are sometimes organizations that are just really, really bad. And then you leave. You just leave. That's not just saying put up with. Yeah, don't put up with bad stuff. But there's so much that we have control over, and all of our our little assessments, tools, and and awarenesses are are ways of realizing, helping people realize they have more power than they think. But, you know, the other part of it is when I read this, my Cinecat, which is a big hat, (laughs) um, my Cinecat was this feels really idealized, that 
is this really yeah. what happened? Can you always and make it better? Can you always make it better? And as I read it, you know, I thought about the role of fear. I thought about the 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 uh, push for inaction. I thought about a spouse who's like, wait a minute, you're making perfectly good money. I don't really give a damn if you're Miserable. unhappy. <laughs> so what have you found? You've dealt with thousands and thousands of people. What's the profile of the person that despite what you've made available to them or given them as tools just cannot make this happen for themselves yeah. what 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 is that profile well the issue is we get asked the question all the time look you, you guys are both successful silicon valley entrepreneurs and you teach at stanford yeah. and you got some more one I mean, of you this one is of a you pile of elite tools electronic for, arts yeah that's yeah. i'm employee number two yeah the, so um i mean come on you know what about the rest of us um and the stanford students right and hardest undergraduate program to get into in the country look do people with a lot of resources and a lot of advantages um, have more upside? Can they design more colorful and interesting things? Yes. If you've got the 5,000-piece Lego box, you can make cooler-looking toys than if you've got the 50-piece Lego box. Oh, I like that analogy. Dave. That is not the issue. The issue is if you've got the 30-piece the Lego box, will these design tools help you make more interesting things with what you have access to and maybe even in so doing help you find your way to 40 pieces? So we've worked with people in – there's a, a community college in Southern California with 70 percent first-generation students, 10 percent homeless students living in their cars who are having bigger impact with our tools than we do at Stanford because those kids are, are frankly more teachable because they're more aggressively hungry. We, uh, You may be a person who's – I want to hear more about that. I mean after – Back in the workplace yeah. and designing your work life. I mean you're – you've – Got to pay the bills, and your wife, you, you, you've got yourself into this lifestyle, and everybody in the family, you know, your spouse and both your kids and your neighbors all go stick with it. You know, you feel completely hemmed in, and you, and you decide that you don't want to put those people in the stress of changing their mind because that's a stress issue. Yeah. So, can I do anything at all? Well, okay, inside, that's the box you chose to live in. Could any of our ideas help you make navigating that box a little better? Tiny, the answer, tiny thing. Sure. And this is where um, don't confuse time with impact. Don't confuse dollars with impact, mm -hmm. right? So one of the examples we have is a woman who works in a call center. Um, and, you know, and she actually likes her job, but, of course, it's pretty darn repetitive. And she's really, you know, and, and she needs the money, um, but likes interviewing. She's one of the best interviewers when they bring new employees in. And she thinks to herself, you know, I love that talking to my other people about their career and that kind of stuff. And then it's over and they're gone and they hire them and they work on another team and I never see them again. And then she goes, wait a minute. And they sometimes come back and say, hey, can we talk some more after they've been hired? Well, she hasn't got time. And then she said, I could keep interviewing people after they've been hired. What if I just came in a half hour early? And she did it on the side. Did it on the side. Yeah. Totally. This isn't, a, you know, it's a side hustle. So you know, once or twice a week for 30 minutes. Come a and have legal a side hustle. Totally legal side hustle that actually could turn into something else. I'll stop the story there. It keeps going. But the point being, look, just a little bit of what you really want goes an incredibly long way. This book mm -hmm. has been way the heck too successful. And I've spent a ton of time on the road, mostly in front of large rooms of people. My preferred thing to do is what we're doing here, having a conversation with one or two people. I want you to go back to more of these first-gen homeless places well, and give them skill sets. So, so what I like to do is have this conversation instead of standing in front of 2,000 people in an auditorium, which I mostly do now. Mm -hmm. So when you know Kim, our speaking agent at Penguin, sends me someplace and I stay overnight to fly back home the next morning, I tell the host, by the way, could I have breakfast with you? Or are there some people on your staff you'd like to hang out yeah. with? So I bolt in, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes of a one-on-one. I want one you to one. come to R.J. Julia's. Any, anytime <laughs> I can. They didn't pay me to do that. Yeah. You know, but they don't mind if I talk to the staff while I'm there. Dave loves yeah. office hours. And, I love office hours. And he hours. just loves talking to people. But you asked another question about the profile, and you brought up the issue of fear. I think most of the time that people are stuck because they're afraid. Change is hard. Yeah. And it is scary. It's scary even and to do- And most of us are not that confident yeah, exactly. that we can make it happen. No, no, no. And, so, and we so, have something at stake. Yeah, and you have yeah. something at stake. And and the kids are the kids need shoes and they have to go to college. Um, so that's the that's where, you know, we look at things like um, uh, our senior guy, David Kelly, wrote a book called Creative Confidence. And it's all based on the work of Albert Bandura, 
who was a psychologist at Stanford who was teaching people how to overcome phobias. And he developed this system of just very small sets of changes. Mm. Then you, 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 get, you get scared, you try something, you succeed. Then you up the bar a little bit, you up the bar a little bit, and pretty soon, you know, you're not, you're not afraid of spiders. Or to me, it's like working out. You start it, cardio yeah, exactly. and you can do two minutes exactly. and then right. you can do five. Right, and, and you don't start I've out. I've gotten to six. <laughs> there you go. And you don't start out saying, if I can't run a marathon, I'm not going to run at all, right? Yeah. Because it's going to take a long time to get there. So it is mostly fear, I think, and um, and a sense of you know maybe I don't have the confidence to do this. Mm -hmm. And so the so one get a design team. That's 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 awesome. The more the more, if you do this with just one other person, your accountability goes way up. Yeah. And we and we do that in the class. We make the kids accountable to each other. And and two, you know, just like set the bar low and try just try some stuff. Try some stuff. Get out of your get out of your head. It's going to be scary. Courage isn't the lack of fear. Courage is action in the face of fear. So be a little bit courageous. Try one thing. Try one coffee with the person mm. you want to talk to and see how it goes. We, had a, we have a lot of very shy students because there's a lot of engineering students in the class, and they're pretty introverted. And we've had students who are like, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can do this. But it's an assignment. You have to go talk to somebody. And they'll come back and they'll say, wow, they really – they talked to me. They were nice. It was interesting. They answered my questions. Because if you go out with curiosity mm -hmm. and you're deeply curious about the person you want to talk to, they love telling their story. Well, and Bill, one of the other takeaways for me is we all have friends who complain about the same thing over and over yeah. and over and over again. And some of us are too patient in listening. And some of us are like stopping friends with them. The, the other... <laughs> And reading this book, you also get tools, I think, as a friend to give them advice of the yeah. kind bill that you just mentioned. So we're we're slightly running out of time, uh, which is frustrating. So I want to make sure we get to a couple of things. Okay. I love the story of Cassandra, but people are going to have to buy the book and just get that story. Okay. Just for the listeners to know, it's fascinating and brilliant. So Local finance girl makes good in marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Okay. I love like little accounting nerds getting good yeah. at um, – and then with a twisted ending. Yes, a twisted with a, ending. With yeah. a twisted ending. Um, so I want to get to um, two topics before we wrap up and close with the small topic of happiness. Okay. One is you talk about – how important it is to quit properly. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the what that looks like quitting properly. Because sometimes it just doesn't work or it's time for you to move on right. and you make the decision that you've exhausted the reframing, you've done this, you've done that. Nope, it's time to go. Right. So we talk about quitting well. Um, because you've made that decision. And instead of just, you know, handing in the two weeks notice and slinking out the back door or rocking into your boss's office and telling him exactly what you think of him, which is the burn the house down and, and leave. Right. Um, none of those are generative or, or very productive because you're always going to live in the same ecosystem of people that know people who are who are working in the same industry as you. So you want to keep your you want to keep your network, you know, in intact. So step one, um, Leave the campsite better than you found. Clean, clean up the things that you're doing. Uh, make sure that um, you know any any undone projects are are wrapped up or taken care of. That people who are expecting uh, a review, a promotion, a raise, or something are taken care of, so that you do all of that first. Right. So you know, clean the campsite up. You know, uh, rev up your network. You mean making sure you're both internally and externally this kind of thing. You know, and then a key thing is to set up your replacement to win. There's a very important constituency mm -hmm. to take care of, which is the person that nobody's met yet, who's going to get that job you're about to leave. So set that person up to win by first of all cleaning everything up and not leaving them to do the dishes. Um, and literally, we suggest that you write a little manual, a how-to guide about how to do your job well. Yeah. You know, you've just spent look all this time and energy trying to make a contribution to this organization. Don't you want what you built to last for more than 10 minutes after you go? I mean, keep the mojo going. <laughs> um, so write a, a guide for how to do that. And then when you finally actually do leave, leave well. Go out on a high, you know. Because you, right. well, you never know. Well, absolutely. In fact, you're more know. likely to know these people are still going to be in your orbit. Period. Yeah. And you yeah. know, and wouldn't you have liked that little little piece of job description from the person you inherited the job yeah. from? It's just basically be a nice human being, and remember this is an ecosystem, and nobody's leaving. We're just moving 
our chairs around. Yeah. yeah years ago, I went, I, um, because I moved quickly back in the day when moving quickly wasn't done. In. Yeah. And so I had to explain myself a lot. And so I was quitting again. I've quit many times. Um, you were an ADD job. IDD job guy. <laughs> so I finally became a freelance management consultant because you can't fire me. I'm gainfully unemployed. Um, but the uh, my, my, one of my last real quits, um, which is for a division director or something, you know, I quit and handed in this how-to guide. Um, and he goes, holy cow, that's that's the best quit I've ever seen, yeah. Dave. You you quit better almost than you worked here. You know, um, he says, you got to write a book about how to quit. Well, it's th- some time ago, and it's only a <laughs> yeah. chapter, but we finally later. got around to it. Yeah. 20 years later, yeah. Because we're all going to quit. I mean, for all the reframing and redesigning we encourage, which is like, don't give away stuff that's really got value in it prematurely. We're, you know, if you're listening to this and you're under 40, you're probably going to live to a healthy 100. You're going to have... Few 15 more jobs. or 20 jobs, three or four careers, you're going to oh, be that quitting. That sounds exhausting, you're 50 or be, 20. <laughs> well, it's, you know, some of us are closer to done, but, you know, you you got to learn how to quit. So one of the things you talk about in a good quit is to, if you can, have a job in place. Yes. And when you talk about uh, the job search, w- one of the statistics that cracked me up is, uh, so... Everything's online now. You go to Indeed or Monster.com or whatever the hell you go to. You write a brilliant cover letter because they don't care about your resume, but they care about your brilliant cover letter. And voila, you're all set. Hmm. Well, you said something like 52% of um, the employers that get application, 52% of the applications don't even get responded to. And their software now... That's, so they're not reading your they're cover reading letter. Yes. It's yes. all being scanned and looking. For, they're just looking for keywords. So how do I go about getting a job today that s- responds to all the right. all the damn work I did after I read your book, and now I've got my life view and my work view? How am right. I going to find that job? Uh, we say, look, the best way to get a job is not to ask for a job, including not to ask for a job online. I mean, go ahead and apply. You know, but when you apply to everything, you've just tapped into about 20% of the real opportunity because most jobs are not even visible in that manner. And half the stuff you see online doesn't even exist. They're just checking out to see what resources are out there. Or the job's pre-sold to somebody else, but they have to post it because of policy. So it's, it's a, I'm not saying nobody gets a job online, but it's a real low probability game. Yeah. So the best way to get a job, actually, is not to ask for a job. It's to ask for the story. Because when I ask for a job, the first two things you need are a job that's open and that the person you're asking is powerful enough to be in charge of hiring for it. And 19 times out of 20 or more, um, that person will say, that's not true. No. But if I'm asking for your story, like, hey, hey, could I work here? This this is a really cool podcast, Roxanne. You kind of, well, no, it's a small team. Thanks for sharing, Dave. Um, as opposed to like, tell me, you know, how did, how did a nice finance woman like you end up in this book business? Now, that's an interesting story because you, what you have to give me is your story. And if I get a bunch of stories and start leaning in, that becomes penetrating the network of the hidden job market, and then invitations can start. And there's a four-step process, which is get curious, talk to people, try stuff, and tell your story that makes that work. And maybe people could expand that a little bit. Curiosity is the energy that gets you started, gets you over the fear. Um, talking to people is the, you know, like, hey. But people don't like networking. You know, they, they don't They not. think networking right. is like a bad word. Right. So this is this is the way we reframe that because our students don't like it either. They think yeah. it's, it's, it's very unmillennial. It. It's kind of slimy or something. Yeah. Um, it's like, look, um, you are curious about the world of podcast land. You're curious about the world of nanotechnology. You're, you've never been to the town of Marketingville before. Right. Well, how do towns and places get to be more popular, get more, more people in them? People move to that. That town. How do you get to the town? You got to ask for directions. So we say uh, networking is essentially just asking for directions. I'm not trying. I'm not asking for a job. I'm not asking for a reference. I'm just asking you, what's it like to live in mm. in your world? In podcast land. Right. Yeah. And once you once you realize, oh, and then we do a little thing in class where we say, have you ever asked been asked for directions? You're walking around campus. Somebody pulls a, a, an alumni with a big badge or somebody comes up and says, hey, how do I get to Hoover Tower? How do I get to Treseder? And you give them directions. Because people like to help people. Yeah. And you and, don't feel used. You feel thrilled to be participating you in the have, human experience. And you had, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I can come. You had a very specific language that I thought was so interesting. I think the For asking pers- for the story? 
Yeah. Or, or how to turn that conversation into getting a job. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're going along and I'm, I'm talking to you about podcasts. And you refer me to some other people that are go, in the book business and are talking about what's happening in books online. And, and we have all these conversations. And finally, you know, I think, wow, you know, this is the kind of place I think I might want to work. And they haven't said, gosh, boy, you seem like a sharp guy, Dave. Have you ever thought about working a place like this? By the way, about half the time, that's they how might. it starts. They might. Yeah. yeah, more often they start than you do. In fact, the problem is they'll want to do that too soon. But you now they haven't done that yet. So how do you kind of go, well, hey, how about hiring me? Uh, you don't say it there. You say, like gosh, Roxanne, you know, I have had such a good time getting to know what you guys are doing here. Um, this really does seem like the kind of place where I think making a contribution would really be an exciting way to live. What would be the kind of steps that mm. a person like me would go through uh, in order to pursue an opportunity at a place like this? Because that's not presumptive. No. It doesn't. Presumptive, if you don't have a job opening, you don't have to reject me or whatever. But you, you know, what, what would it look like? What would the steps be right, right. You know, for someone like me to be able to make a contribution in a place like this? Now, if you say, well, as a matter of fact, you'd apply for job opening number 125 over here that Harry is about to hire. That or, they didn't even post yet. Haven't even posted, posted yet. yet. Right. Or, yeah. you know, God, I'd lo- you know, we're staying small, but, you know, you know, Harriet, my friend down the street, is doing this really cool thing. Let me call her for you right now. And that that's a very organic way of asking the question. Right. I was literally just doing a big conference for another another college campus. I'm on other campuses more than Stanford these days. And my student handler, who's walking me around all day long, had memorized the sentence in the book that tells you how I to say that. that. He memorized the sentence and he said, it worked. The guy talked to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I can see why. And so... Well, it's also it's all about empathy, right? And the the power tool question at the end is of, hey, if you were if you were me, right. what would you do next? Mm. And you know, I've asked you to have some empathy. Like if you were me, literally, if you were me, what would you do? And people always have an answer to that question. And it's typically generative, and it typically leads to the next interesting story, and sometimes even to the opportunity, right? Because people like to help people if you put them in the right. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I think that's absolutely right. So yeah. we're going to close this conversation with the okay. way you close um, the book. And I, I loved that. And your concluding chapter is permission to be happy. Just what does that mean? Well, you know, um, Dave and I spend a lot of time in office hours with students. And I, and I don't do advice. I'm, I know I'm their advisor, but we don't do advice. We mentor them and we reflect back to them on what they're saying to us and see if they can find their own truth. But half the time, it's just giving them permission. I had mm-hmm. a young student said, well, I, I got into Teach for America. It's really exciting. I'm going to go work in rural Tennessee and help kids learn about Shakespeare. But I also got this really cool job at McKinsey. And my parents really want me to work at McKinsey because I can make a lot of money. And I said, well, I can't help but noticing when you talk about the McKinsey job, you're all slouched down in your chair. When you talk about Teach for America, you seem pretty excited. What do you think that means? Mm. They said, I think I want to go work for Teach for America. I said, I think you can do that if you want to. Yeah. It's just giving permission. Yeah, it's amazing that people need permission to feel like they're entitled to be happy, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the surprise Um, and sort of the sad thing that there are so many people who don't who feel like they do need permission to do right. what makes them happy. But just a little bit of permission. And in the book that, you know, you become the more empowered designer. Yeah. Um, you, 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 get, you get into a place where then you can help other people and give them permission to be happy too. Yeah. So we've been talking with uh, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, whose latest book out on February 25th is Designing Your Work Life, How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness at Work. So here's my uh, recommendation to listeners who might want to read this book. You might want to read this book if you're unhappy with your job. You might want to read this book if you're happy with your job. You might want to read this book if you're looking for a job, and you might want to read this book if you were an employer. So if I left anybody out that ought to read this book, <laughs> and I think that their, covers And the, all of those people's friends, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and their yeah. friends. And their um, friends. So I'm, I've, uh, I, I learned so much from reading the book. It's been great uh, to have the conversation uh, with both of you. Thanks for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. 
You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.